quantum computing fundamentally is the best way to process information based on the laws of physics as we know them. I had constructed what I thought of as the generalization of the universal Turing machine. Can an astonishingly powerful new realm of computation be found within the quantum world? Will researchers ever realize the goal of what they call quantum supremacy? And what would it mean for our society if they did? From its fundamental building blocks to the ultimate goal of a truly universal quantum computer, join me, Oxford Professor of Philosophy Peter Millikan, as I explore this and many other questions on the Future Makers podcast. Available today from wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. And I have uh, Dr. Mark Burton. He's an uh, author of uh, How Children Thrive, the Family ADHD Solution. Uh, he's based out of Pleasantville, New York, and he focuses on developmental pediatrics, subspecialty of uh, pediatrics focusing on child development and developmental disorders such as ADHD, autism, and learning disabilities. So, uh, Dr. Burton, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you doing today? Okay. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, I have you on the podcast because um, I've been hearing a lot about ADHD in particular. I know a lot of families have, and some people uh, are seeming to say that, uh, you know, ADHD is on the rise tremendously in the past few years. Uh, some seem to hint that possibly sleep disorder is causing it, but I wanted to ask you, since uh, you're in the thick of it, what's what does ADHD look like to you, you know, for starters? Well, I think you have to look at two different things, and there's a lot of things in life, and we can talk about some of them possibly that can mimic ADHD, but the reality of ADHD itself, if it's correctly diagnosed, is that there's a developmental path called executive function, which has to do with life management skills, like managing our attention. It's like kind of like the brain CEO, so managing managing our attention, managing our behavior, managing time, managing emotion. It's sort of the coordination center of the brain. And um, just like language skills develop at their own pace over childhood, but we can monitor them and try to catch kids up who fall behind in language skills or motor skills, 
the the basic reality is in spite of all the misinformation and judgments and everything else that gets thrown around and really confuses people, there are a subset of kids who fall behind in executive function skills. And practically speaking, that's what it means to have ADHD. Um, and we know very definitively that that's a medical disorder when it happens. I think the, the quickest shorthand I usually uh, have for helping people understand that is that the genetics of appropriately diagnosed ADHD are just about as strong as the genetics of height. So you know, if you put someone up for adoption, it's their biological parents, nothing to do with their lifestyle or upbringing that predicts whether or not they'll have ADHD. So the short of it is it's really important to recognize when someone has ADHD, but it's very disruptive from a developmental point of view. And for any individual, we might have to sort out whether something else is falsely looking, making it look like they have ADHD or some other condition like a sleep disorder is mimicking ADHD. I mean, there's a lot to go through to do a, you know, a, a really you know, high-quality diagnosis. But if you, don't, if you underestimate ADHD for someone who actually has it, those, you know, those children and those adults are going to really struggle quite often. So it sounds like it's pretty strongly uh, inherited from generation to generation. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, it's very like so. If an immediate family member has ADHD, everybody else in the family has about a three or four-fold risk of having it. So, um, so again, there's a lot to be talked about about overdiagnosis and misdiagnosis, and it's not to say there aren't larger problems that need to be discussed. Also, but if you can establish that someone has it, you know, it's a it's in essence a medical disorder, just like a language delay isn't anybody's fault, except in a very you know you can always find extreme situations like you know, neglect and things like that, but in, but for language, for example. But in general, kids who fall behind fall behind for, you know, developmental reasons, and that's really what ADHD is. Uh, do you see that the incidence of it over the past, you know, yeah. 10 years, maybe longer, is, is changing? No, the the actual incidence, and again, in spite of a lot of misinformation online, is, is around, is a, you know, there's some range, as you'd expect for any genetic disorder, but roughly around 1 in 15 and there actually hasn't been a huge, you know, there's, there, there basically has been, um, for again, for accurately, di- for accurately diagnosed ADHD, that's, that's a pretty consistent rate across countries and demographics and time. Uh, you know, the fact that it's overdiagnosed in other populations is a different discussion, really. But what are some symptoms of uh, people that truly have it versus people that maybe appear to have it, but, uh, you know, when you look at them, for instance, you see, no, it's not that. I mean, the, well, I mean, this isn't. A, I mean, we we can actually just extend the discussion a little bit because they're quite. You know, they're, they're, you can look at this from the point of view of general child developments, and I think that helps. You know, any parent understand it because it's, because it does relate to general child development too. So it's relatively new science understanding that there is a developmental path related to self-management skills that that executive function skills themselves evolve across childhood. So we can't expect the same thing when it comes to like managing time or even on a more specific level managing a classroom at different ages. So what what it means to actually have ADHD is that, and I should say, by the way, that we don't really use the term ADD anymore, so that when it comes to ADHD, you have an inattentive type and a hyperactive type. And what you're really looking for is a, as long as the um, expectations we have on a child are appropriate, what you're looking for is, are there abilities within the range of what you'd expect for age expected? And I think the easiest shorthand for understanding that is, is in essence, you know, no child should be undermining their own life in a chronic way. And that could mean academically they can't learn because of their focus. That could mean when they're a high schooler, you know, they can't manage their workload because they can't do organization planning and time management. It could be socially, 
you know, there's a big study that came out last week, not a big study, but a study that came out last week showing once again that, that as you become a teenager, ADHD is related to car accidents because it really is involved, you know, with anything that requires man- management and coordination that way. It's been linked to obesity. So so in the end, it's the way you diagnose ADHD well is you have to know someone well enough to say that can, can we establish across a large stretch of time that their development is behind in this way. And part of that from the evaluator's point of view, not from a parent necessarily, but the person doing it should be looking at whether something else is mimicking it in some way. So like a, you know, a serious sleep disorder, which therefore leaves you tired and off all day long, doesn't mean you have ADHD, it means you have a sleep disorder. But the diagnosis uh, of ADHD just has, you know, it has a lot to do with knowing child development at different ages. So the reason I mentioned the kindergarten classroom issue uh, or, or managing a classroom issue is that, for example, when we make early childhood classrooms too academic, that's been shown to increase the rate of false diagnosis of ADHD. Because the average kindergartner, from a developmental point of view, if you understand executive function, really isn't supposed to be sitting in a classroom for long stretches of time doing traditional learning, and they're not supposed to be you know, reading and writing for extended periods of time yet. They're still supposed to be learning through play at that age. So, so the diagnosis comes from sort of understanding what typical development should look like. I think it's one of the reasons it looks like there's a lot of ADHD culturally right now is because of the environment our kids in our kids are in quite often is overly intense and kind of you know more than they can handle. But that doesn't that doesn't mean they have ADHD. You know, ADHD exacerbates that situation. But someone who actually has ADHD right. has that has kind of has that longer chronic history of struggle. Is there an age range where um it's, you know, you're able to make a, or someone's able to make a two diagnosis and at an age below which it's really tough to do. Well, it has, to, yes. Uh, although it has a lot to do with understanding what typical development looks like. So it's, it's unusual to diagnose it before early elementary school, but not impossible because it's just a matter of extreme. So, um, so it's possible, you know, some of it also has to do just with severity. So in preschool, you can diagnose ADHD, but you have to understand that the average preschooler is quite active and has a short attention span. Um, and then you know, every once in a while, I see someone who is so far off the charts, it's it's like a safety issue or they can't make friends at all because they can't control their impulses or attention even long enough for a typical play or to be kept out of the street or, or situations like that. So, so it, you know, it, it's been studied down to around age three. And, uh, you know, you try to give preschoolers the benefit of the doubt in growing up. And I think a very important thing when it comes to ADHD is um, you really want to separate potential treatments from just understanding child development so that the evaluation process isn't about treatment. The evaluation process is just trying to find why somebody's having a hard time somewhere. Um, and then the other end of diagnosis, you know, at the mildest end, some people don't even get picked up until maybe they leave high school because that's the first time in their life that they're really required to be totally independent and manage time and keep track of their own health and just sort of you know, handle the subtleties of life in that way. And as long as they've been in a reasonably structured household, they kind of do okay. So the, the difficulties they have around executive function don't even show up until, you know, until that end. Um, what, so, are, what are a couple of simple uh, examples of executive function and a lack of, uh, lack of having it? Well, it depends on your age. So I think um, I'll give you two, two extremes. Um, you know, in the in early childhood, 
you're not supposed to have much of the overall, you know, if you, you can think of executive function kind of as life management skills like a CEO or the conductor of an orchestra, sort of just holding everything together and planning for the long term and things like that. So, you know, common symptoms on the early elementary school side are the old stereotype of ADHD, kids whose attention spans too short to, you know, to stick with play or to learn in a classroom or who have uh, more overt symptoms like impulse control issues, so they get in trouble with their peers or they get in trouble with their parents excessively. Again, not you know, there. there is the old boys will be boys concept, which is true. So we're talking about kids who take that to the extreme where they're really causing themselves a chronic impairment of some kind. Um, but the other end of things, and actually when you talk about the overall diagnosis, kids who often aren't diagnosed are um, kids who are who, for whom academic issues, academics come relatively easily and who are well-behaved. And on that end of the scale, their issues don't often don't pop up until much later because they're more in, internal difficulties. Like, for example, some people feel as you become a young adult or adult with ADHD, a concept called time blindness is the main issue that you might be experiencing, which just basically means you can't predict time, manage time, keep track of time. You know, everything gets handed in late and done at the last minute, and you can't break up a project over many weeks. And eventually, you know, that begins to get in the way of your learning or your household or your job. And that, so, so that's the sort of more subtle and nuanced side of um, executive function. And, and, and actually, I could even go beyond that, which is to say that that is the same skill set you actually use to just manage everyday health. So there's been more research over the last couple of years really suggesting that the older you get, ADHD can really become a subtle health issue because it undermines sleep and healthy eating and sticking with exercise routines and driving and, and actually untreated puts you at risk for substance abuse. So there's a there's a much bigger picture to ADHD as you get older that has to do with just managing all of everyday life, which is really what executive function is about. Um, and really the newer, you know, the, how, the book you mentioned when we started, How Children Thrive, is more about why it's important for Every day, for just everyday parenting to understand executive function separate from ADHD. Because if you think about those life management skills, they have a lot to do with just resilience and success day to day for all children. And anything we can do to build those skills in any child helps set them up for success, helps make them more resilient over time. And I think most importantly to me, um, a lot of the things that help develop executive function in early childhood um, are kind of much simpler and back to the basics. Parenting you know, really helps parents step out of the swamp of just too much information and misinformation we're living in nowadays because it turns out, you know, what? well, it turns out things like in early childhood, like a lot of free play, you know, consistency at home, really it helps define why setting limits around technology is so important. Um, and then it ties to another idea, which I, you know, which is something I feel very strongly about, which is you know one of the most direct ways to build these skills too, is, is actually the practice of mindfulness. So we, when you tie that whole big picture together, you know, we can't control everything for our children, but we can help them become more resilient. And to help them become more resilient, I think it's really um, reassuring as a parent to know that if you can just keep your feet solidly grounded in, well, sometimes I think of it as like the, the modern science of back to the basics parenting. If we can just be confident that we have a good relationship with our kids and we're setting some boundaries for them and we're helping set you know, limits so they can do more creative play and free play and not, not over scheduling their time, you know, really in many ways we can be confident that we're doing what they really need 
without getting caught up in the next fad or the next class we have to schedule or the next product we have to buy because most of that stuff doesn't, you know, isn't really needed most of the time. Do you think parents can help their kids cultivate higher executive function? Well, you know, like a lot of traits, it's, you know, part of it is genetically programmed and part of it is, is yeah, I mean, part of it is how we choose to raise kids. Um, and like I said, I think the nice thing about that particular discussion is a lot of what helps kids develop these self-management skills and become more resilient is kind of old school common sense parenting and, you know, just sort of ground ourselves in that without worrying about all the rest quite so much. So what other um, disorders or childhood development uh, nuances are you involved in pretty actively in addition to ADHD? In my clinical practice, um, I do a lot of work yeah. with autism, a lot of work with learning disabilities. Um, so those, I mean, those are probably the three, you know, the, I mean, there's a lot, some, some of the kids I see have anxiety, but, but basically the biggest, from a child development point of view, it's ADHD, autism, learning disabilities are the three most common, um, you know, disorders I'm seeing day to day. Well, before moving on, uh, treatments of uh, ADHD, mm-hmm. yeah, I've heard about Ritalin and some of these drugs that seem to zombify kids, but with, what treatments options are out there that people may not know about? Well, um, I mean, one of the things to know about ADHD is that there are a ton of interventions that have been shown to potentially be helpful for kids who have ADHD. So um, I usually break up the options into kind of three groups of interventions broadly, although there, you can keep digging down to each of them. The, the first one, one of the biggest ones, is if you can identify that someone's behind an executive function, um, they're entitled, because they have ADHD, they're entitled to school supports, which are really vital because if you are a seventh grader, for example, who's three or four years behind in your life management skills and your study skills and your organizational skills, you know, you really need specific school supports to help you catch up and to help keep you caught up because you don't, you know, it isn't fair to let those kids fall behind just because they're forgetful or just because they don't know how to manage time. They need really adult help to catch up on those skills. One of the most important things to recognize about executive function is it's the problem-solving part of your brain so that kids who are behind in executive function are very uniquely behind in the skills that would allow them to problem-solve and plan around their own ADHD. So they need a lot of adult support to overcome that. Um, the second set of uh, supports that are really important are mirroring, and, these, and this is, I'm talking about evidence-based care to answer your question. So that's one thing that's been shown to help kids. The second part of evidence-based care are more behavioral uh, supports outside of school. So how do you cultivate executive function in a family? How do you help parents teach those skills to kids? And the most proven non-medical approach to ADHD is working with a cognitive behavioral psychologist, which isn't particularly um, you know, sexy. It's just hard work over time, but it has been shown to be effective. Um, and then another aspect at home we need to look at is the health piece, because a lot of kids with ADHD are undermining their own life because of their poor sleep or they won't exercise or they're on screens too much. And that exacerbates everything that's going on too. And that's the second. So there's a long list of things you can look at there. If you can help with a sleep problem, if you can help with, you know, uh, just giving parents tools to manage behavior at home, that goes a long way too. And then the last thing that I think is really important to mention when everyone, when anyone mentions medications that way is that, you know, the reality of ADHD medications is they've been around about a hundred years that the research really says that if we do an intensive enough period of trial and error, if we really manage them well, real, the, the science says that 80 to 90% of people can get significant benefits with no significant side effects. And that myth of the zombie effect is a serious side effect, but as long as you're looking for it, the medicines are out of your system over a few hours, um, and no one should be living that way at all. 
So that is not the goal of treatment. That's an unnecessary side effect. And the reality of ADHD medications is they're just an option. They're not inherently good or bad. There are medical, you know, there are many medical conditions in life we try to manage non-medically first, like high blood pressure or allergies or things. I mean, there's also, you know, and the same model holds for ADHD. If you choose to take a non-medical path first, that actually doesn't follow the textbook recommendations. I often prefer it. I mean, it's generally what I prefer, but at the same time, the the option of trying medication with ADHD is just evidence-based care. The medications have been shown to be quite safe and effective if they're used right. So it's really, I think, unfair to anyone living with ADHD to suggest otherwise because it makes a really, you know, very difficult decision even harder when people start feeling judged about making that decision. So, um, so that's the reality of the medications is they're, you know, if they're used well, they can be very helpful to people um, and they shouldn't make anybody a zombie in the long run. They should, you know, when they're used appropriately, they should help people, you know, overcome their ADHD and nothing, you know, nothing less and nothing more. Well, you mentioned earlier that uh, it's heritable, you know, the ADHD. Um, how often do you have parents come in and the kid is diagnosed with ADHD and then the parent says, oh, my God, I think right. it makes sense because I, I feel this and I'm this way. And well, I mean, that's surprised to learn that they're like that. Right. Well, it's a very important question to ask and a really common one because um, ADHD, you know, as we've, um, because it is so heritable, that's that's actually quite common. I think you know it's it's really um, and most importantly, part of the diagnosis is the stress and impairment that ADHD causes. So if you're going to work with any child who has ADHD, and even though I'm a pediatrician, you know, developmental pediatrician, I feel like I have to work with the whole family. And one of the things that isn't discussed enough about ADHD is if a child's behind in these self-management skills, that puts incredible stress on parents. And the parents of kids with ADHD often feel very swamped and overwhelmed and you know, they're really struggling to make a lot of very hard decisions and manage a difficult situation. So that's an important starting point always is to help support a whole family. And then if you add to that the fact that many of those parents themselves have undiagnosed ADHD, which is a life management disorder. So it makes running a household harder. It it makes doing the things that you need to do to manage ADHD harder. Um, All of that is just kind of inherently part of and common to, um, you know, working with any child who has ADHD. When it comes to uh, to autism, any changes there? I mean, again, you read in the news that it seems like it's on the rise. Incidents have gone up tremendously. Is that uh, is that true in your experience or no? Well, again, it's a similar situation where most of the research in autism points toward it's not as strong a genetic influence as uh, ADHD, but that as far as anyone you know doing the research is is concerned, the the majority of ADHD, excuse me, of autism is, is, again, it's a developmental disorder. I think one of the um, really disappointing things, and hopefully that'll change over this generation, is that most kids who have developmental delays of different kinds, we can't really tell exactly why they happen. It just seems to be part of childhood, um, from, and, and there isn't really a, a test or an explanation most of the time, and that's you know, kind of awful in its own way. Um, so when it comes to autism, most of the increase in diagnosis really seems explainable based just on better diagnosis where we're, you know, we're able to catch it earlier and recognize mild and milder, uh, mild and milder impairments based on autism. Autism is a little different from ADHD. Under, underneath that, there does seem to be a slower and steadier rise in the diagnostic rate. 
um, but the reasons are you know, pretty unclear. And there is a little bit of research suggesting that the majority of that has to do with just um, better screening and better recognition of it. But it's not as, it's, that's not as clear or straightforward a discussion on autism as it is with ADHD. Eva, you, know, you said that they do have a genetic component. Literally, what, what does the genetic component look like? Is it like a transposition of a... Yeah, well, that, that's where we just don't know yet. It's more just like it, it, when you say something is generic, it doesn't mean you have a test for it quite yet. So that we don't know. Like, so with either ADHD or autism, we can't really trace it to a single gene, and there might not ever be a single gene. But a lot of the more you know, complex ways the body develops, and more specifically the brain develops, actually probably has more to do with a pattern of genes all working together. So that you know, some of the research is more about you know, different patterns they're looking for. So. So in neither of the two conditions right now do we have a single gene test for them, and I'm not sure that's ever really going to happen. Um, the genetics of, of autism are more seeing trends in families. Again, not nearly as strong as the trend around ADHD, but it's there. And um, we're seeing trends where other people in the family might have other types of delays. So that, But it's not. Um, we're not anywhere close, as far as I've ever seen, to you know, having a single gene explanation for either of them. And then how do you see the influence of uh, smartphones and technology and iPads and things like that on all three of these conditions, you know, ADHD, well, autism, anxiety? Yeah, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a great question. And often what you have when you have disorders like, well, we haven't really defined. So autism is really, you know, if ADHD is a developmental delay of executive function, autism primarily is, is a developmental delay of social development and communication skills. Um, they go, they overlap a lot. You can have both. And, um, and often what you have going on, I think, is that you have something like the impact of technology on childhood, which um, is very clear at this point in time. I mean, the issue is that technology is here and it's just a tool. You can use it well or you can use it poorly. But when kids don't get specific guidance and limits from parents, they often get overwhelmed by it. It just becomes too big an influence on their life. And so that kids with ADHD and autism, there's research suggesting they might be on devices three to four times as much as their peers who are probably already using it too often. Um, so what you have with ADHD, even more than autism, um, is a situation where almost everything ADHD puts you at risk for just about mimics the list of what too much technology time puts you at risk for. And then because symptoms of ADHD include hyperfocus and novelty seeking and easily bored and struggling to prioritize, kids with ADHD, it seems like you know, screens are like candy to the brain almost, like they just crave it. And then that gets in the way of all these other aspects of development. It's like, a, it's like a, you know, it's like it takes on its own momentum. So on the one hand, too much screen time has been shown to very likely impact things like attention. And on the other hand, too much screen time starts replacing healthier activities like unplugged play and creative play and reading time. Kids just get out of the habit of doing any of that. And if you don't intervene and really help them manage that situation, they really start to exacerbate all the things, all the things that ADHD does um, and disrupts their social time, disrupts their homework, disrupts you know their health. So really, um, I, again, I would come back to sort of that, that important concept that this is true for children at any age, you know, executive function skills, these abilities to manage life and keep track of the long term. You know, these skills actually mature until our mid-20s. That's also very new science. So that typical human development involves maturation of these these really important skills you know, 10 years out of adolescence. So the reason even teens often struggle 
to manage a smartphone well or to make a good choice like not to have their smartphones interrupt their sleep or to you know realize how to manage it skillfully while they're doing their homework so that they can get their homework done effectively and then do their you know social media time all those things are really really hard for teenagers even for m- most teenagers really would benefit from approach to technology more like teaching them to drive a car of just recognizing like we want you to do this safely and here are our guidelines and you know if you show you're doing it well you'll get more and more freedom and then you tie that back to ADHD and then you have a really challenging situation because you have a high schooler maybe whose friends are all doing these things that really aren't ideal, but they, if they have typical executive function, they're probably managing it fine. You know, like we all have to find our way through things. You don't want to, you know, children you know, need a chance to find their, to make mistakes and find their own way. And so many teenagers, it's not ideal, but do okay with their smartphones and everything else. But the problem is, is you have a 15 or 16 year old teenager who has ADHD and then they're five years behind in their ability to do those same things. And in trying to keep up with their peers who are, you know, talking to each other during homework or whatever else they're doing or watching things late at night, those teens with ADHD are going to take those relatively benign situations, you know, that those situations that are often benign for some individual kids and then just, you know, blow them out of proportion and really start struggling. So you really have both situations going on. I mean, all children benefit from guidance around executive, uh, excuse me, around technology because it really is becoming very disruptive for this generation when they don't get that. And then for kids with ADHD and autism, they often need much more specific support from the adults in their lives, the adults in their lives to make sure they manage it well. You know, it's just a tool to make sure it's used appropriately, to make sure it doesn't become disruptive, to make sure they're behaving appropriately on social media. All of that, you know, really needs to be part of the day-to-day life for this generation. So what was the goal of your uh, your recent book and what, you know, who is the audience for it? Well, the, more, the most recent book is really meant for general parents to help understand. I mean, the, the larger goal was to provide, hopefully, a foundation of reassuring advice that just helps them understand at different ages how to help their children become independent. So what does that look like around sleep, maybe, in younger kids, around homework as kids get older, certainly managing technology and giving you know, sound advice about how to help get a handle on technology is all, is all part of the book. Um, what came together for me in writing it is that um, I really wanted to help people understand because it's relatively new and I think relatively practical for parents to understand that this path of executive function, which we used to think of as just kind of like a trait you had, you know, you had, it was just like blue eyes or not blue eyes. Um, executive function is a developmental path. And if you can really see it at different ages, it helps you understand what children should be capable of and where they should be looking for opportunities for more independence versus you know, requiring more direct adult support. So it supports all of day-to-day life for parents. Like I said before, it ties back to the idea of resilience and just recognizing that if we can develop these skills, we don't have to get all caught up in all the rest. We can just focus on, you know, raising them in a solid household this way, and they're probably going to develop all, you know, all the skills they need to take over on their own eventually. And then the other thing from a research point of view that I find interesting about this and I think is practical is recognizing that if you can understand executive function and its importance, on the one hand, it shows why it's really important to recognize and intervene for ADHD because ADHD is, practically speaking, delay in executive function. And on the other hand, there's all this talk about mindfulness in our world right now, which can become its own. It seems like a cliche. It seems like, you know, whatever, just it's the next latest fad. But really, it's been around for centuries, and and now the newer science is showing that from a practical point of view, that's that's a big piece of what mindfulness does, is it lets us choose to d- develop traits in ourselves that help us manage day-to-day life 
many of which have to do with executive function too. So from a research point of view, it's almost like mindfulness and ADHD are two sides of a coin related specifically to the development of executive function. Okay. Well, very good. Well, where can uh, where can parents get your book? Is it on Amazon or is it uh, just through Absolutely. your practice? No, no, my book's on. Uh, no, my book's published by Sounds True, and it's on Amazon and all the major websites. And um, and I have a whole. Uh, I have a lot of resources on my website, which is uh, developmentaldoctor.com, related to these different topics. Um, because the most important thing to me, I mean, there's so much parenting advice out there to try to provide parents information that helps them sort of simplify their lives and, and make you know, make things more straightforward instead of more complicated. Well, very good. Well, Dr. Burton, thanks for coming on the podcast. I, I appreciate it very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for the invitation. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.